You're listening to the Substandard Model. Right, here we go. Two teaspoons of Botox is enough to kill the entire, the entire United UK. Kingdom. Yeah, the entire the entire of Britain. That was the one I knew you knew. All right, okay. We discussed this. Teaspoons. Is this is the one you said we've discussed? Yeah. It's the most it's the most toxic chemical to humans. Guess what the lethal dose it's is? It's a really potent nerve agent, right? Yeah, yeah. Guess what the the, the lethal dose is? Roughly. The lethal dose. Yeah. Is this a number of molecules? I'll accept a range. It's in it's in a a weight measurement ends right, at grams. Okay. It's something grams. Okay. Uh, you can guess in standard form the number I'm of grams. Say one times ten to the uh, minus seven grams. You are roughly five orders of magnitude out. What, one times ten to the minus two. No, twelve. <laughs> One times ten to the minus twelve. It's one point three to two point one nanograms, which is ten to the minus twelve. I believe. Kilograms. Kilograms. 10 to the minus twelve kilos. I said yep. grams. Wait, so I was because I was doing minus seven, which means I was in the hundreds of nanograms. Sam, I wasn't that bad. A nanogram is ten to the minus. Nano is ten to the minus nine. All oh, right. Oh, we'll shut up. Because I did zero point one micrograms, which means I'm a hundred times what you're. God, I, I wasted a lot of time there. Yeah, sorry. Is that your fun fact? I mean, my fun fact was expanding on on why botulinum toxin is so damn toxic. Okay. Uh, do you, Do you want that expansion, Henry? I mean, do, uh, what 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 do you know about what do you know about the mechanism of action of Botox? Uh, uh, is it to do with the myelin sheath, Sam? No. No. Okay. Is it to do? It's to do with synapses. Is what it is. It is to do with synapses. It's it's going to block a neurotransmitter in a synapse. In a way, no. Is it is it is it filling a synapse with a neurotrans? What is it doing? It's it's filling the a Well, I guess it does block it, but not, not not in the way that it feels like you're implying. Um, essentially, there are these things called snare proteins. Right. Right. So, based, so when when you do when you do a thing when you do a synapse, a synapse is a gap between two nerves. And essentially what happens is you release a vesicle of neurotransmitter that goes between the, post, the presynaptic neuron and then goes into the postsynaptic neuron. And then it transports neurotransmitter between them. Now, what you need to happen for that to work is you need the vesicle at one end of the synapse, at the top end, you need to like fuse with the wall, fuse with the membrane. And as it fuses, it releases the stuff it has inside of it. Right? That's called exocytosis. That's a very important thing. Wait, so you've got, you've got your nerve... You've got the little stringy bits that come off the end of your nerve for your connections. Yeah, yeah, and at the ends of those stringy bits, you have a little wall called the synapses. In the synapse, in the cell, there are ves- do you know what a vesicle is? It's a, like a hole. It's got this little compartment. In a way, it's the opposite of a hole. It's a little box. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's like a sort of box of cell. Like imagine, it's like a bubble, a bubble of cell membrane inside the cell. Right, and it's got to go flat against another surface in order to explode out the neurotransmitter, which is a chemical inside of the box. So the synapse is between the two cells, right? That's the gap. Yeah. And then the vesicle is in the first cell. It hasn't been released yet. Okay, here we go. So imagine the synapse is a street. The synapse is like a road, right? And there's one house on one side of the road and one house on the other side of the road. 
you haven't left the first house yet. So there's the, the, the water balloon is in the first house trying to get through the wall. Once it's got through the wall, it's in the, uh, it's in the road and you just release all the neurotransmitters loose in the road and it just lives in the road and it goes, the concentration goes across to the other house and the other house on the other side of the road sucks some of that up and then takes it into the house. Why is there a wall in the middle? Well, that's just the wall of the cell. You wouldn't have a cell if there wasn't a wall. Oh, so it's a cell wall. Well, oh, it's I a cell it. membrane. Cool. I shouldn't say cell wall. This is all about leaving the first house. So your exocytosis on the first cell. I'm trying to get the neurotransmitter uh-huh. out of the first cell to begin with into the synapse. Your goal is to get to okay, the synapse cool. is the idea. Right. So like it's uh, you've got like a sort of imagine you've got like a, a wall made of clay and you've got a ball made of clay with stuff in it and you smush the ball into the wall and all the stuff comes out. It's like throwing a, a water balloon at a brick wall. So that's the idea. That's that's exocytosis. Um, and it's very, it's 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 all very useful. But the thing is, activating the synapse. You want this to happen in fragments of seconds. You know, you don't have time for the, your balloon to saunter over to your brick wall, right? So snare proteins help with that. Snare proteins essentially keep the vesicle, which already has all the neurotransmitter in it. It keeps the vesicle right next to the to the cell membrane. It keeps it right the balloon right next to the wall, as you will. There are three um, snare proteins involved in this. Okay, three. There's one called syntaxin. There's one called SNAP25. And there's another one called synaptobrevin. So you've got synaptobrevin, which is on the vesicle, right, on the balloon. It's sort of just sitting there. And then syntaxin and SNAP25, they're on the wall. They're on the cell wall. And then what they do is essentially you get a little sandwich, basically, where synaptobrevin, SNAP25, and then syntaxin all stack together in that order in a little sandwich. And they bond together nicely in that way. And that, and that, and that, because they're right. all bonded together when they're in that little sandwich position, that keeps the vesicle on the wall, right, ready to go, right against the wall. And that's called you form something called a core complex. Wait, so it's like it's like a sticky mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called it's this transbonding between the three proteins that are attached to the uh-huh. vesicle and to the wall, and they all slot together. So now you've got the vesicle on the wall of the membrane. It's all all well and good. Loads of these form core complexes, which is what this is called. You get loads of them building up on the wall of the presynaptic neuron. And then when you've got an action potential coming, when you've got a neuron being activated, calcium comes into the cell because that's what happens. You know, you get, a, you get calcium gates opening, calcium rushes uh-huh. in. And there's another protein I didn't tell you about, Henry, called synaptotagmin. That's not even in this complex, but it's just stuck on the vesicle. So the vesicle has synaptobrevin and synaptotagmin. And the, what synaptotagmin does is it waits for calcium. And, and then on the C, a CA2 site, I think, of this protein, calcium binds. And that is that essentially triggers the core complex to, I don't want to say contract, but it does a similar thing to contracting where it smushes the, uh, the vesicle into the wall. So usually that would sort of happen passively. But then once these throat free proteins detect the calcium and they conformationally change and the vesicle just gets smashed into the wall, you're essentially just pushing the water balloon into the wall. Great. And everything comes out. And that all happens at once because it's right there. So it's all very quick, very coordinated all at once because they're all in the same place. You know, you don't have to wait for them to fly over. They're already there. But with Botox, so loads of different kinds of Botox. You know, you've got types A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, loads of different kinds. Each of them attacks different snare proteins, but all of them attack snare proteins. So, like, for example, what they do is they basically just cleave them. They just get in and they just cut the protein in two and they stop it from being able to properly form. So you can't, you can't make the snare proteins. So you can't form the core complexes. So the balloon can't be smushed into the wall. So when the calcium comes, 
Who cares? The balloon's just sitting there. It's not even near the wall. It's nowhere near where it needs to be. Which means you're not triggering another cell, which means you're not triggering any more calcium. Which means you're not releasing any... Yes, you're not releasing any um, neurotransmitter. The acetylcholine isn't leaving. It's not going into the next neuron. And then the next neuron doesn't care. Nothing happens. So it's paralysis. You're breaking the chain of neurons at one point, and then the message can't be transferred at all. Essentially, yeah. And you're breaking the chain of northern neurons around there. And um, so Botox A, that's how it gets SNAP25. But that's the most toxic one, I think. And that's the one, that's at least the one used most often. Um, but the rest of them are also also very bad. And they attack stuff like syntaxin and synaptobrevin and whatever. Um, and then once your snare proteins don't work, essentially you don't work. Um, pr- instant paralysis, basically. No chance right. whatsoever. Sam, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, two teaspoons will kill the entire country. Is uh-huh. pretty and fucking cool. I thought ten to the minus nine grams. Ten to the minus nine kilograms. grams. Ten to the minus twelve kilograms. Yeah, Jeez. nanograms. This is you know, one to two of those. So, okay, yeah. great. So, I, I that's a bit of Botox for you. And to think yeah. we inject that into our face willy nilly. Yeah, how much do we inject into our face? A decent amount, but the thing is, it doesn't get into our. You direct it directly into your blood. So, oh, I'm sorry, no, 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 sorry. You direct it in, directly into your muscles. So those muscles are dead, which is why they're all paralyzed. You're paralyzing your muscles when you put Botox in. But the thing is, right. it's not going anywhere else because it's that bad. Like, it's so bad that it just stops your muscles. But, but, but it's not getting into your bloodstream because it's so targeted. If it got into your bloodstream, surely... Ooh, okay, so it's not going to do anything to your blood. Right, and then it diffuses out of your bloodstream at different points around your body, let's say. Yeah. And the fatal part would be stopping your heart, uh, the, or, yeah, or, or making you a bit brain dead. Thing is, it it does depend. It, it, the ability to spread from the injection site is what kills you. And even if a tiny bit of it does, it will just yeah, it will paralyze your your heart or any and part. So you need to It'll, somehow contain. It, basically, it paralyzes any muscle that it happens to be in. And if that muscle happens to be your heart or oh, around oh. your brain or whatever, then you're so dead. So the lethal dose, when applied directly to the heart at the key point in the heart, can be as small as X. Yeah, essentially. Is what the fact that, is. Yeah, that, yeah. The lethal dose is defined in all sorts of ways. So it, it's, you know, it, it, um, it, it's, it's, to- it's toxic in very many places. All right, so and of course thank you for that. as well, which is not good. Um, I learned quite a lot there. Yeah. Botox. Uh, that's a piece of knowledge that I'm I'm grateful that I have now. <laughs> Sam, I've got some information for you. Hell yeah! Right, kitchen sponges. You know what a kitchen sponge is? Yellow, yellow on the top, generally green on the bottom. You can choose different colors. Right. Okay, what if I told you kitchen sponges are like scarily perfect at uh, being homes for bacterial colonies? I would, um, I would, um, I would be both scared and and terrified. Yeah, well, they they are they are uh, scarily good at being uh, colonies for uh, bacteria. Of course they are. Of course they are. We're idiots. Mainly because they're damp, airy, and loaded with food. Generally, how do we not see this coming? <laughs> But secondly, um, scientists recently discovered that due to the little compartmental-like nature of mm-hmm. the sponge, in that it has lots of little holes in it, right, which can be accessed by air and the food, right? 
bacteria can maintain a really large quantity of biodiversity. And that means that bacterial colonies that wouldn't usually survive, say, in a competitive uh, place like, mm-hmm. I don't know, a kitchen surface, right, where they get outcompeted by more social bacteria. Well done, um, bacteria like that can survive in this environment. Um, what have I written here? I've got bacteria like different levels of interaction with their peers and this is dependent upon what species of bacteria they are so you kind of end up with situations where some species of bacteria are more introverted than other bacteria right yeah sure some are more extroverted some more introverted if you've got a colony going on one species might not like to be in that party might feel a bit left out because it doesn't like being so near Mm -hmm. so many people so many other bacteria right and then you might have a more extroverted species which actually loves the competition with all those other species right but what you get with a sponge is because it's so compartmentalized means that the introverted ones can live on their own and the extroverted ones can live on their own. And when the introverted ones uh-huh. end up in the extroverted bubble, they get outcompeted and killed, right? And the extroverted ones don't do as well as the introverted ones when they're inside of their introverted bubble that has already grown into a colony, right? Sounds sick. Sounds great. Right. So, so basically, scientists tried... 1,536 different things which are called bacterial wells, right? Which I asked you about earlier before the episode recorded, um, which were essentially separate compartments, um, similar to what you would find in a sponge. Uh, they left it for like a week or, or you know, 36 hours, I can't remember, a, pe- a long period of time to allow it to grow. Mm-hmm. And they found with different strands of E. coli, you could get better growth in the compartmentalized structure than in the uh, general everyone for everyone structure, right? Mm-hmm. And this means that certain bacteria, e.g. salmonella from raw chicken, if it gets on a sponge, the sponge's structure actually promotes the survival of salmonella as opposed to uh, letting it die off as it usually would on a kitchen surface. Right? How do they get in the sponge? What do you mean, bacteria? Yeah, I mean, if isn't I imagine the sponge has lots of air bubbles in it, but surely the material between the air bubbles is reasonably... Well, the water's going through, if you think about it. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. I mean, where water's going, bacteria is also following, because... Um... So you've basically just made, like, a sort of penthouse. Uh-huh. I mean, the foodie stuff is on the green scrubby side, no? If you're using it right, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I imagine they can go in between the little hairs on the scrubby side. Um, I also imagine they can sit inside of that yellow compartment just above the scrubby side. Follow up um, question. It just creates lots of little different areas where different colonies can grow, um, which means that sponges have a really, really large bacterial biodiversity. Aren't sponges also like mostly completely covered in some sort of antibacterial substance? Like you're using them to wash dishes or something. Presumably, like, are you just rubbing bacteria all over your dishes? Is that what you're doing? Or well, is yeah, it... but this comes back to another thing. Do you know that there's a seven, what was it? It was like a, it was like a 40% chance that dish soap from a public soap dispenser will actually put more bacteria on your hand than if you just <laughs> use it. So you come out of doing your business what? from the toilet. You come out of doing your business from the toilet. You go to the public dispenser, you squirt dish soap on your hands, and it gives you an increased number of bacteria than what you had after just using the toilet. No, that's efficiency. <laughs> exactly. But they're probably not like bad. They're probably not like the bacteria that you would de- get from poo. No, I don't probably, know the exact. It's probably better bacteria. Like otherwise, otherwise, this is a real scandal. Like well, all these years, people washing their hands less. 
Real right. scandals exist, Sam. <laughs> but like, <laughs> that can't be true. It's only like thirty to forty percent of all. It's not less things. healthy. I'm sure. It's only forty percent of all soap makes you dirty. Not that's, all that's soap. Not or public th- dispenser soap. I think it's to, partly to. Here's an interesting question: Is it to do with contamination in the actual soap because it's stored there for extended periods of time in a dirty wash washroom, or is it to do with like the handle or the dispensing product? I think it's uh, probably a combination of both. Yeah, the handle. But I reckon there is definitely some bacteria inside of the soap. Yeah, yeah which that, implies that, that the that soap probably... is not as sterile as we would have thought. Well, now I don't know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> I'm now I'm confused. Just feed yourself bacteria and become immune. And I guess what that's the only that, way. Sam? That's oh, well, good. Well, that's pretty good. I'll finish it off. Sponges can hold 54 million bacteria per cubic centimeter of sponge, <laughs> which is more than than you would otherwise expect. Wow. There we go. Okay, I'm gonna be honest. I, I actually found the soap fact a little more surprising than the sponge fact. But I, appre- <laughs> I, always, I always do this. <laughs> but I appreciated your sponge description and all the effort you went to. Can I throw in a bonus fact? Just I want to say no, but I mean, it would, sure. I'm not going to hear it's it otherwise. So go Everyone ahead. wants to hear a bonus fact. Who doesn't want to hear a bonus fact? Come on, Sam. You're Woo! Bonus. bonus fact, right. Yeah. 28, you're 28% more likely to be hit by a car if you cross at a zebra crossing as opposed to jaywalking where you just walk straight across the road. What? Yeah. And that's because statistically people, when they cross a zebra crossing, assume they're invincible. Because oh. they're like... Okay. Oh, it's a zebra crossing. The car's not supposed to hit me. So you find people lacking on their car watching ability whilst watch, whilst crossing a zebra crossing, which means people more commonly die on zebra crossings than on jaywalking. That's just thought that's it was quite a fun statistical anomaly that the place you're supposed to cross is more likely to kill you. But also removing all like hu- removing all hum like if you're going to concentrate the same amount. And you've got to cross the road in two places. You cross the zebra crossing. It's still safer, right? Like, like if, if it's one person... Well, and yeah, because you, have to make you would choice. assume that the car driver would stop. It's just, like, it's oh, like, zebra crossing, maybe I have to stop if there's a person there so they pay attention more. Again, that I probably like that more than the soap one. All, right. all of these are good facts. I appreciate all these facts. Hey, Sam. Hi. Give me some information. Information uh, coming right up. So this is a good fact. I'm very happy with this. Um, Basically, researchers turned dead spiders into necrobiotic clamps, grippers, essentially. Microbiotic Um, grippers. Necrobiotic grippers. Necrobiotic, because they're dead. Because they're dead. Necro... they, so you know how spiders contract their legs? I assume with some muscle. No. It's essentially hydraulics. So really? Insect, insect bodies are basically just made up of, of hollow tubes, and inside those tubes are hemolymph, which is kind of like blood, but it's, it's more shit. It's, it's not very good. It, it's less effective than blood. And they don't have blood vessels. So the way that they move usually is just by injecting this hemolymph just forcibly into your legs and they extend. And they do that uh, very effectively and through lots of joints, but that's essentially the idea. Can I so, jot in? 
Go for it. Earlier today, we were at the Science Museum. Remember how I said to you that spacesuits are hard to move in because the air pressure tries to push the the limbs and the the fingers and the arms of the spacesuit yes. out to a sort yes, of energy minimized position. He did say Is that. it the same where if you've increased the pressure inside of the spacesuit, it extends the arm? Mm-hmm. Like in a spider, if you increase the pressure of the hemolymph, it forces the arm into the longest possible state. And if you decrease, it sort of sucks in like a Capri Sun. Yeah, almost exactly. It's like a balloon. Like a balloon. Yeah, you blow out the balloon and it extends straight. And it's great. It's easy. Um, and I mean, it's a, bit, it's a little more complicated than just blowing up a balloon, but it's essentially that. Yeah, that's the, that's the physics that are being used. And essentially, well, that's why when a spider dies, it all shrivels up because it's, it's not pumping its blood anywhere. You know, right. It's just it's just not extending any of its limbs. But what the researchers have done is they've they've euthanized some spiders, which I'm like, just wait for them to die, but fine, whatever. We'll do what you're gonna do. And they made a tiny hole in the back of the spider's exoskeleton. And they squirt a liquid in. They got some air. Well they just got air this time. They just got some a little a little needle that, that had access to air. They uh-huh. sealed the rest of the spider. And essentially you can make the spider just grab things. Because when, when you squeeze the air and it opens up, and when you take the air out, it grabs. And they can grab things up to, like, multiple times their own body weight. That's interesting. Why have they used air? Because air's compressible. I mean, air's just... A liquid would be a bit grim, wouldn't it? I mean, it would it'd probably get stuck in there, or I don't know. I mean, That's all you true. need is air. All you need to open and or maybe, close it is or maybe, maybe if you squirt the liquid too hard, it just destroys the entire spider limb. Yeah, like if air didn't work, they probably would have just found something else. But air does happen to work, so they. That's all you need. Yeah, and the thing is, it, the 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 liquid or whatever fluid you're using doesn't affect how strong the spider is, right? How strong strong the grip is because it's closed state is when there's nothing in it, right? Right. So it's not like you're holding it up with any of your own weights. The spider's natural body position is what's holding it, right? And they can they can grip like other spiders, like it's very very like it's surprisingly high amount of weight they can take i mean the most interesting part of this is the videos of it because uh-huh. i mean I'm, I'm used to them now but my first reaction was that is absolutely gross it's really not it's not a nice thing to see but it's so cool I'm so how, you how would we access the videos online uh what, what google kind of just like necrobiotic spider grippers or dead spider grippers i think that's what i looked up because i'd heard about it on twitter and i was like i gotta see this and ew which is absolutely it's so you oh it it's is so you oh because it's 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 not the legs of the spider it's the entire spider hanging on a syringe and they squirt the spider with air yeah. and it picks stuff up it's a dead spider it's, it's what it is yeah nice and, and they're like they're like claw machines basically yeah and they've got loads of applications for them like for the biodegradable they uh, you know you can... <laughs> they're biodegradable that's great <laughs> they're, they're bio it's a dead spider. So yeah, they're if you go if they're biodegrading. <laughs> um and they can probably use smaller spiders as well. You know, they're trying to figure out how to trigger the legs individually. Is it for picking up particularly small things? Like what small things are they trying to pick up? Well, for now they're just it's just a rather bad gripper that's used for, you know, small objects. But the thing is because of the little because the arrangement of the legs, they can pick up irregular objects. You know, it's that's very easy for them. It's very I guess it's very cheap if you need them for like tiny engine micro engineering or whatever. But I'm, I mean, they ha- I'm going to be honest, they have better alternatives to dead spiders in pretty much every area where it would be useful, but right. they're not useless and they're pretty cool. And it's cool that you can do that.
It is cool that you can do that. It just shows, like, you know, they're, they're, they're saying maybe you can lift things onto a circuit board or whatever, but I'm like, you know. That's a bit on. of a stretch. You, you, you can like, do better than that, guys. You can make, why not make a tiny tweezer with, like, a little tiny nanotube tube? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I feel like you could, like, instead of having a dead spider, could you not make a version of the dead spider but small? Like, why are they using this instead of like 3D printing a tiny spider? Like, you want like, like inspiration? Yeah, you, like how they Japanese bullet trains are modeled off birds, right? But they're not birds. <laughs> but they're not birds. Like, why, why, why have we decided to use a dead spider um, and not just go with the Japanese bullet train guys who decided not to stick a bird on the front of their train? I'm guessing it's somewhere lies between how disgusting the videos are and, you know. The, the fact that even if they could design a small gripper, it probably wouldn't be too useful anyway. Because, I mean, tweezers work pretty, pretty well, if I'm honest. Because no, no one's funding it, is the answer. No one's funding it, yeah. Let's, let's right. go with that. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad they can do it, and it looks horrible, and you should probably watch a video of them doing it. Uh-huh. That is a great piece of information, Sam. I'm really Thank glad you. I've received that. Yes! Hi, Sam. I've got some more information for you. Oh, thank God. Honestly, I'm running, I'm running dry. I need more. Right. So, I recently found out about this bacteria called C. Difficile. I think I, I might know this fact. Oh, fuck. Clostridium really? Huh? What, what's, what, what's happened about C. Difficile? Isn't it a thermophile thing? That is not my fact. That's not your fact. Is it better than that? That is not my fact. Okay, good. Right. C. Difficile is antibiotic resistant right which means that when you apply loads of antibiotics to yourself it kills loads of the other uh, bacteria right in your gut mm-hmm. c difficile lives in your gut um and c difficile survives all of your antibiotics somehow which we'll get onto later um and that means that when you use loads of antibiotics c difficile grows as a colony and you become quite poorly with c difficile mm-hmm. right i love that its name is very difficult difficile oh I remember why I know this one. I remember why I know this one. And it's not your facts, but I can add something to your facts. Right, cool. Add it at the end. Yeah. Right. The reason that it is antibiotic resistant is because it has, in all senses of the description, a chain mail coating that surrounds it, right? Mm-hmm. It has tightly linked protein mail with really small holes that mean that antibiotics and enzymes can't access the interior of the bacteria. So it's just got an armor coating made out of a uh, strong protein layer called SLPA. I think SLPA actually stands for uh, surface level protein acting something, right? The A stands for something, but I think the SLP stands for surface level stuff, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, like I said, when antibiotics are used, C. difficile survives and monopolizes, um, and scientists need to find a way of lancing essentially or poking a hole through this strong protein coating chain mail that the bacteria has created that protects right it. um that's the fact it can survive uh most enzymes such as lysozyme which is found in uh saliva i think mm-hmm. um and that that essentially cuts open bacteria because it displurge i mean most most antibiotics work by just making a hole in the membrane and i guess if they can't do that then fuck they can't do that no that's cool. 
that's pretty cool. Do, do you, I, I, have a, I have a cool thing to add on, which I was in a talk that I heard. I was I I knew I heard C diff somewhere. So this is right. Add it. right so add my it. my add on is, so you know, stool transplants. Stool transplants. Yes, fecal transplants. Is that is that where you eat someone else's poo in a cake? In a cake. I mean, yeah. I mean, how, that's how they do it in hospitals. I swear, you want to do it. You don't want to eat someone's poo, so they make it into something so that you can still eat it, oh. but it's like not just a, a piece of shit in your hand. You know? I thought I thought they just put it in like in solution and then put it down your throat. So just, my mum so deals with stool transplants. I think they do that. They actually make they actually make a cake. That's what she says. Well, yeah, they 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 put it in things like they put it in. Oh. I can't remember what exactly they oh, put it horrid. in, but they put it in food. It's like in oh, drops. it's so much worse. It's in pills. It's in pills sometimes. Yeah, pills make sense. They put it in Imagine pills. Imagine, like, yeah. there are three cakes. One of them contains human poo. <laughs> I'm sure they've got some way of making it not too bad. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cake, the cake will taste fine. Better than a C. diff infection. But the idea is there was this... I, I mean, I would have mentioned this in my talk on the human microbiome, so you, you, you right. may have probably heard this before, but there was a study they did about new treatments for Clostridium difficile C. diff infections. And that study involved... That's C. Diff yeah, yeah. And that study involved, essentially... Getting a bunch of people, I think it was in Denmark or something, and they gave half of them stool samples, and they gave half of them this funky new antibiotic treatment, and they wanted to see which was a more effective treatment in, in you know, stopping C. diff. And the stool sample was so much more effective. Like, it stopped, like, over 90% of cases of C. diff infections were stopped by yeah. the stool sample. And they were so much more effective than the alternative that they literally had to stop the study halfway through because it was unethical to keep giving people the alternative to the stool samples. Because C. difficile is so because resistant. It's, because, well, no, because still, because the other ones work so much better. Oh, so it just wasn't worth continuing. It, it wasn't worth continuing. It became unethical to give someone the treatment which wasn't 90% effective when you could just treat them immediately. So, so they, had to, ah. they had to stop the study, <laughs> which was supposed to be a comparison. It's, right, it's not because the other one was so effective. It was because the, the antibiotic treatment was so ineffective that it became bad to keep giving the antibiotic treatment if it's not doing anything yeah yeah more or less and also the, i mean the end the, the antibiotic treatment like i mean this was like a new antibiotic treatment that was, that was like 40 50 percent effective which for back antibiotics is actually kind of fine it's actually not bad but like the fact that the stool samples were 90 percent effective yeah that's why we still do it we still feed people other people's poo yeah and it works that in itself could be a fact for quite a lot of people listening i only know that because my mom told me and i was really surprised I remember having long conversations with me, my sister and my mum, where we're just quizzing her about stool samples. And she's watched stool samples. She's seen stool samples. She knows how they're prepared. They've got pills. They've got all sorts of ways of delivering stool samples. So someone's a and my mum's like, they, get make, they make like a pooey water, a pooey water, and then they give it to the people and they drink the pooey water. It's not very nice. <laughs> it's not very nice at all. <laughs> yeah. but it is very nice. That's a good it's fact. Like good piece of information. That's, uh, like, yeah, see the good i mean bad but cool c diff chain mail c diff has chain mail. oh oh wait i forgot it is one would say it is difficile for antibiotics right the thing is antibiotic resistance is kind of happening anyway i can't remember if the, i don't know if this one evolved well it must have evolved you know originally but no but i mean antibiotics I evolved 
due to the use of antibiotics or whether it's whether it was originally then antibiotics were just not useful against it so i'm wondering whether it's evolved against enzymes instead of antibiotics and just as a as a secondary part to the the you know evolution of resistance against enzymes it's resistant against antibiotics well the thing is most antibiotics are produced by bacteria they're the secondary metabolites so for example penicillin really yeah like penicillin is produced by fungi to kill bacteria so a lot of antibiotics are actually just like compounds produced by bacteria, which are designed right. to kill other bacteria. So they right. would have evolved that even just living normally without humans because they still have to yeah. deal with these chemicals. I think C. difficile is my favorite bacteria. I also quite like, I can't remember the name of it. It's like Magnamus or something, T. Magnamus or whatever, right? And it's the bacteria that can grow up to two centimeters as just a single specimen. Two centimeters? I think that's the max recorded that's size. It's the largest ever bacteria, bull. and it's like a tiny that's worm. Bull. That's got to be millimeters. I'm looking at the largest bacteria in the world. Thiomargarita namibensis, which is over a centimeter long. Holy shite. <laughs> right, there we go. So it's about 0.1 millimeters in diameter, but occasionally 0.75 millimeters. Bacterias don't have diameters. Like, that's not a thing you measure. It's like, when have we started recording diameters of bacteria? <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? There are sen- like, I mean, you can't see them with the naked eye. Everyone knows bacteria don't have a volume. You can't see you them know? with the naked eye because they're so thin. But they're very long. That's like a hair, though. Like, I reckon if you... You could pick, you could pick it up. You know, it's pretty cool. Like you could, you could rub it between your fingers. Your fingers could definitely feel it because of how sensitive your fingers are. Yeah, probably. So you would be able to roll that one singular bacteria between your fingers and be able to oh, feel this, the this, texture. This guy of it. says it is visible to the naked eye. Yeah, cool. Wow, that is very cool. Right. This is going to be a short and sweet one, Henry. Okay. Oh, exciting. Lovely. It's not even a science fact. It's just a cool fact. Okay, so I'll just get straight to the point. Nachos were invented by a guy named Nacho. Is that the fact? That better not be the entire fact. Because if that's the fact, Sam, that's just my baked beans fact, but worse. Oh, Jesus. What? How is that your baked beans fact, but worse? That's a good fact. (laughs) It's not a good fact. Nachos were invented by a guy named Nacho. Who's? That's so cool. A, I don't know. I, like, off, the, off the cuff, I can imagine that a beef Wellington was named by something related to Wellington. Yeah, but that's because it's called Wellington. It's like a name. It's like a word. This is like yeah, me telling like, you that nachos chips... could be like a Spanish word, you know? But it's not. It's a name. Okay. This is like me telling you that chips were invented by a guy called Chips. Like, would that? It's that. It's the same. I mean, it's... that is quite okay. Fine, fine, fine. Just keep talking. But like, it's. Not, I mean, I, I can't claim to that second one. That was an example. That might not be true. Almost certainly yeah. isn't true. But the Nachos one is true. Okay. Nachos. Nachos. Let me let me elaborate because I don't like your tone. Um, so that <laughs> it's consisting of fried tortilla chips covered with melted cheese and cheese sauce, and it was invented by a guy called Ignacio Anaya. Right. So his name isn't Nacho. Nacho is a common shorthand for Ignacio, so his name is Nacho. Wait, is it? Is that not Ignacio? Or have I been saying it wrong my whole life? Well, the name's it's spelled, it's pronounced Ignacio, but they call him Nacho, right? That's just the, that was his name. Or maybe it's pronounced Nach Nacho. No, maybe you know how I, you know how I know that you know. So this is this is why it ties into my life. You know how right. I know that Ignacio is is shorthanded to Nacho. Why? Because I was just um I just went to the jungle with a friend. 
Oh, that's how you're for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and and one of the guys there, right, the herb guy, he went to the Amazon for two weeks, uh, sleeping in a hammock, uh, was... getting attacked by wasps, uh, tarantula hawk wasps, <laughs> which are the second most painful sting in the world. And there were also bullet ants, which is the most painful. He claims it was a fun experience. It was a very fun experience. We didn't care too much about the the old stingers. But there was a guy there, the herpetologist guy, was called Ignazio. That was his name. But on the first day, he introduced us as, I'm Ignazio, but you can call me Nacho. So was that. Right. So we called him Nacho for two weeks. That was his name. He's on my phone as Nacho. Like, his name's right. Nacho. Like, we, we only called him Nacho. And, and now I, that I'm learning that, that literally Nachos were named after that. Like, it's not like we called him Nacho because of Nachos existing, and it's a fun nickname. We called him Nacho because Nachos were named after that particular abbreviation of that particular name in 1941. Nice. And he that's made a, that, that's a pretty cool fact. He made them when he was working as a maitre d at the Victory Club restaurant in Mexico in in Coahuila. And um, are they are they fried tortillas? Yeah, I think so. He made them by fr- freshly fried pieces of corn tortilla in a moment of culinary inspiration. He had a melted cheese and pickled jalapeno. And then they were given to this this guy called Finnan, who was like a, I think he was like a radio DJ or something. And he said, oh, what is this to the waitress? And then the waitress called Anaya. She said, oh, we just call them Nacho Special. And then, uh, and then it became Nachos. And then it became Nachos. They're Nachos. So every time you, you eat Nachos, pay homage to Nacho because they're his. The master, the master, the Nacho. Right, you know that joke? Which is like, you know, what what, what what cheese isn't yours? And the answer is nacho cheese. It should be nachos cheese. And it's not yours anyway, because it's still nachos. <laughs> uh, where, where's this cheese from? Um, well, actually, there's a list. So if you're on the nachos of Wikipedia... Honestly, the Wikipedia page for nachos is probably the most in-depth Wikipedia page I've ever seen. It's extraordinary. Wow. There's a list of ingredients, and it includes common toppings, and it just goes off on it. It's just fucking chives sour cream and salada dressing which i'm and it doesn't have a so i'm guessing it's a misspelling and then all the cheeses used do you want to know all the see if you can how many of the cheeses can you name right so they they list one two three four five six they list 10 cheeses that are commonly used on nachos i want to see cheddar's there okay one of them's Uh, a bit of a cop-out i don't I don't know i don't want to say mozzarella but it's on there mozzarella's mozzarella's on there i know i'm i'm I'm, it's on there. I'm as obsessed you are. The only reason I was thinking mozzarella was because it's it's a common cheese. So it, people are just going to use it, you know? Yeah, exactly. But it shouldn't be. I don't think Nacho would be very happy uh, with What that. else? Halloumi. People like halloumi, so they're going to experiment with that. Come on, mate. Are they not? <laughs> no. What about Parmesan it, it cheese? I feel to like go. that's also a common cheese. No! You've you got to think of cheeses you put on nachos. I know mozzarella you wouldn't put on nachos, but, you know... Okay, you know what? Just keep going. <laughs> I want to get three more, and then I'm going to stop this cruel ex- game. Like, now we're getting to like obscure cheeses. Uh, Those are like the four big cheeses. I would say there's a couple cheeses that you could get. One okay. of them's very easy, but you won't think of it because it's too obvious. Uh, nacho cheese. Yeah. <laughs> got him. Nacho right. or nacho cheese. I'm on three. I've got three of the ten. You got three of the ten. Uh, Okay. Uh, gal- gold- is- How do you pronounce Gouda cheese? Is it Gouda? doesn't matter. It's not there, but it's Gouda. Gouda, is it? It's Gouda, I think. 
We have no idea. Don't, Sam, don't. I don't swear, swear it's Gouda. I'm going to Google. Swear. Google Gouda don't cheese. Because every time I eat it, I go, mm, it's very Red good. Red Leicester. It's very Gouda. <laughs> Reading English cheeses that I know. Gouda cheese. Red, what is Red Gouda Lester cheese? <laughs> Why are people Googling what does Gouda cheese taste like? It's a cheesy cheese. Gouda cheese pronounced. There we go. It's not going to be something exciting. Gouda cheese. What about Emmental? Gouda cheese. Well? Fuck. That's Gouda. Gouda, nice. Okay. Uh, Emmental? No. Uh, like all the cheeses that I know that I, I know the names of are now just like weird cheeses. Like imagine Camembert, imagine you're reading like a menu. Gooey. Imagine you're reading a menu. What does it say? Monterey Jack cheese. Monterey Jack cheese, Henry. Monterey, okay. And then there's also Swiss cheese. There's Swiss cheese. Oshaka cheese, which is Mexican cheese. Cotilla cheese, which is Mexican cheese. Cheese. I don't know the fucking Mexican cheeses, do I? Pepper Jack cheese, Henry. I don't know Pepper Jack cheeses. Do you want to know what Provol cheeses? I do not. Provol. Oh, well, there you go. That these are all the cheeses you saw. <laughs> what the fuck is this section, man? We said you said snappy and quick. It's just ten minutes of cheese. Well, that's because I got it over and done within five seconds, and then you seemed disappointed. So I just kept reading. <laughs> I just kept reading the nat the nachos. <laughs> looking for something page. interesting. I am. Yeah. Uh, the biggest nacho in the world. Guess how big it is. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, let me say two square meters. It's not written here. <laughs> they don't tell you how big I'm going to tell you what the sentence says. On International Nacho Day, they held a festival and at the birthplace of nachos featuring live music, cultural activities, and a contest for the biggest nacho in the world, which was registered with Guinness. And that just, they just don't say how big it is. No, I mean, the world's largest nacho is, is Nacho himself. <laughs> Fucking hell. 110 feet. Long? Wide? Long. Diameter. <laughs> is it a triangle shape? World's largest nachos is 110 f- It just says long. It's 5,000 pounds. In, That's 30 in, meters long. In weight. It's 30 meters 5, long nacho. Multiple tons. And guess what, Henry? That's like two, three tons. cheese on it. <laughs> It's, it's literally got the toppings on it. Wow. It's 30 meters. There, that can be the fact if you want. Here's a question. Tortillas are floppy. Nachos are crunchy, right? If you fry it, there must be some sort of molecular conformational change which changes the structure <laughs> into a rigid, brittle structure, you know? I have a feeling that it's it's like water leaving. It's most of it. You think? Yeah, that's my gut. No! No! What is it? Oh, it's so cool. And that's so much better than my fact. You're welcome. I love thinking of random things and then just getting like a brilliant, like, no, no, like that you is, never knew. This is, and actual science. this is no way actual science, but it's actually, it's so weird. Okay. So, so, so as I just said, so you, can you, I'm going to see if you can guess this fact. So, um, nachos, nacho cheese contains sodium citrate. Citrus salt, and it's citrate. a commonly it's Stop a commonly it's used citric acid, sodium citrate. Man. It's a commonly used. No, I'm calling it sodium citrate for a reason. And it's a commonly used preservative and melting agent in cheese sauces. Right now, what is my fact going to be? <laughs> it's about sodium citrate. Can you guess? It's the kind what? of thing you could guess. What, it, what it, is this? To why it becomes crunchy? No. Like, what okay, it, think what about what's the formula of sodium citrate. Well, it's a sodium ion next to a citric acid uh, anion. What would that be like? What would that be? Do you think? So it's it's Na three C eight Na three C six H five O seven. 
Right, okay. It spells Nacho, Henry. N-A-3-C-6-H-5-O-7. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know. You can't just relate sodium citrate to nachos. Though. Yes, you can. They're used in nacho cheese. It's a common melting agent in cheese sauces. And the formula spells nacho. Isn't that the coolest thing ever? And it's the shortened version of Ignacio. And it's the oh. shortened version of Ignacio who invented nachos. Wow. It's all what? Connected. Sam, why are nachos crunchy? I don't know. It's such, it's going to be the same as why your bread is crunchy when you cook it or why everything gets crunchy when you cook it. Can you Google it? Why is bread crunchy? when? It says, I mean, every answer, every all the signs point to evaporation. As bread cools, any leftover moisture in its interior migrates to the surface. If that moisture reaches the surface and hits cool air, it condenses on the low surface, making it soggy. If it hits warm air, it evaporates, leaving the crust crispy. And that, that process is accentuated when you cook the bread. So from the inside out, water leaves the bread, essentially. Right, okay. And what happens to the structure? Like, it must have come out from something that enables it to be uh, floppy. Like, is there an intermolecular interaction between the water molecules and the, I don't know, starch in the bread that means that it forms an elastic pop compound? Well, when you add well, when you add water to any, like... Ugh. <laughs> I Google why it's bread dough and it just says it was probably undercooked. Right, this is not science. This is just... But there's something definitely different about the crust and the center. Because the crust is a different color. Oh. Is that just a Ooh, is it, this is a new f- this, See, this fact can actually be Googled, I think. What is... This is actually a good question. What is bread crust? <laughs> it's the crust of the bread, you fuck not. But, but, but dough doesn't have crust. So no, it's not dough just... does not have crust. We're doing big it's brain just, here. This is huge it's bread crust. Help bread. Bread Wikipedia. Fuck it. I've resorted to this. So structurally, bread can be defined as an like, elastic yeah. plastic foam, the same as styro the same as styrofoam. The glute the glutenin protein. Nice. So essentially, that is gluten. Gluten, I think, that contributes to its elastic structure. Right. So that allows it to regain its shape after deformation. Right. When water evaporates during cooking. The glutenin elastics foam doesn't work anymore, basically. Gl- gl- gliadin. Okay, right. Okay, here we go. Oh, this is exactly what you wanted. Oh, wow. This could not have been more perfect. So essentially, there's just a picture of gl- something called gliadin and glutenin and water. So gliadin and glutenin mix together when in the presence of water, and they form a disulfide bond between the glutenin and the gliadin, and that forms a mesh structure. Which is slightly elastic. Right, so gliadin and glutenin stick yeah. together, essentially. And that makes an elastic polymer yeah. right, when water is present. Go. Right? Through evaporation. When you remove the water, the gliadin no longer sticks yeah. to the glutenin. And it just... Fo- which means it's which just... What? See, what? I'm confused at why, why that makes it... I guess it sets it, so it's no longer elastic. It's lost its elastic properties, so now it's just... It's just rigid starch. Starch naturally is just tough. So if you remove what gluten does, then I guess it's just no longer it's no longer elastic. And then how does gluten-free stuff form a crust? Oh, so many answers. So oh no, it's not, this isn't the crust. I don't think. I think this is just why bread is like squidgy. The crust I was working on, but then I got distracted by the Wikipedia page. Oh wow! So there's something called acrylamide. 
which is found in bread. Yeah. And it's been known to occur in neurotoxic substance that essentially makes men infertile and gives you cancer. And apparently there's 99 more percent acrylamide in the crust than in the rest of the bread. So I guess that answers the question, is it just dry rest of bread? No, it has different chemical composition. But why? Why, 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 does, why does acrylamide move, migrate to the outside of bread? Acrylamide, it's an organic, white, odorless solid, soluble in water. Um, blah, 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 blah. Toxicity, where's it? Occurrence in cigarettes, occurrence in food. It's a genotoxic derivative of glycamide. Hot French fries are heated to high enough temperature. Oh, okay. So it's produced by the reaction between asparagine and reducing sugars. So that's fructose or glucose. Right. And there's asparagine, which is produced in... It's a byproduct of the Maillard reaction. Oh! What's the Maillard reaction? What's the Maillard reaction? It's cooking. It's the stuff that makes things brown. The Maillard reaction is the chemical reaction that's cooking between amino acids and sugars, basically. Okay, so it forms on the outside more because... Maillard reaction is... Or the outside's what's exposed first. I think maybe you need access to oxygen. That would make sense. And the outside's exposed to oxygen. So the reason that nachos are crunchy and that tortillas are not is because during the cooking process where the nachos are exposed to high heat, what happens? So the reason that nachos are crispy is because when they're non-crispy, when they're in the tortilla form, you have glutamine and you have um, gluten gluten and proteins and you have gliadine, I think, gliadin. And these are two proteins that form a sort of mesh, an elastic mesh, which only forms in the presence of water. And that allows it to be stretchy. When you put it in high heat, the water evaporates. It's no longer stretchy. It's fixed in place. It's just a starch polymer. And that's what a nacho is. Cool. And then the acrylamide stuff was why it turns brown. And the acrylamide is a byproduct. It's of a the toxic Maillard, byproduct. Of the Maillard reaction, yes. Uh, which is, I mean, most people would know what the Maillard reaction probably is. It's just cooking. It's caramelization. It's, it's when things go brown. All right, cool. So it's, it's, when that, it's when you react it with asparagine instead of a normal amino acid. And, that, and then you could occasionally form, uh, you know, this, that's uh, commonly found in bread. Though, not dangerous, so much, not so much in. Uh, and I suppose the yellowy color is just when oil goes into the bread of the tortilla. No, I doubt it. That is, and it's corn usually. It is the corn as well. Yeah, all sorts. I mean, I don't know how how applicable this is to tortillas, but there you go. I wonder if the Ignazio is still alive. Not, not sure, man. Like, if you have, I mean, having that kind of impact on society, is that, does it get men- does it get like, you know, mentioned in your gravestone? He died in 1975 at age 80, known for inventor of nachos. Good oh, there he, that, that's a picture of him. Oh, he looks like a lovely guy. Yeah, he looks very cool. Yeah, nice. Right, thank you, Sam, for that information. That's gonna be yeah. Funny, best right. fact yet. No, no. <laughs> best fact yet. Sam have you ever found an old tub of ice cream in the in the freezer let's say right and the freezer's been through a few cycles since you put it in it's it's been opened already it's been closed half full a couple of scoops left sits in the freezer you find it let's say two months later open it up, think, I want some ice cream, and then it's got these really large like ice crystals in it, so it's really crunchy and grainy now. 
Uh, I'm gonna be honest. Ice cream doesn't usually tend to last very long in our house, but I, 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 I think I get what you, get you what mean. mean. Yeah, so the ice crystals grow in it, which means you get this sort of grainy, crunchy ice cream instead of the smoother ice cream that you would want. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, this is a process that happens as a result of the temperature fluctuating on the ice cream uh, throughout throughout its um, life cycle. Let's say. Um, so yes. it gets warmer, the ice melts, gets a little bit more melted, right? Then it freezes again, and the ice would generally re- tend to refreeze in a clump. And so you get these yep. larger clumps forming. They currently combat this by including a thing called, I think one of them, one, one of the things, they've got all sorts of gums and stuff they put in it, all sorts of products, right? So currently they use gua mm-hmm. gum, right? Guagum. Not sure where that's from, but uh, what it does is it, it prevents these large crystals from forming, but uh, it has a different mechanism from what I'm about to talk about today. What I'm going to talk about today are natural nanoparticles that prevent ice cream from becoming grainy. Um, these nanoparticles are called cellulose nanocrystals, or CNC right. for short, and they are derived from wood pulp. So if you include this in ice cream... Uh, the theory is is that it will decrease the number of ice crystals that large ice crystals that form, and it will slow to large ice crystals, which means you can have smoother ice cream for longer. Um, what? Why is so? That? The way they work Are is you... in a similar way to antifreeze proteins produced by some animals to help them survive in sub-zero temperatures. Right. And antifreeze proteins work by binding to the surfaces of ice crystals, inhibiting growth of the ice crystal. Because you yes. need the water molecule to hit it at a certain speed at a certain angle in order for it to add on and grow an ice crystal. Um, there's also mm-hmm. interesting science in the growth of snowflakes, for example. Um, so I presume you can cover it in a sort of protein coat, which means that water can't access it in the right conditions to be able to continue the growth of this ice, right? So you've mm-hmm. got these CNCs, these cellulose nanocrystals, which we could put into ice cream. Um, why aren't we using the growth proteins that are found on these animals? In, why have we decided to use the CNCs? Because the growth proteins, sorry, the ice-inhibiting growth proteins, right, antifreeze proteins that you mm-hmm. find on animals are really expensive. Um, but these CNCs, these cellulose oh. nanocrystals, are a lot cheaper than these antifreeze proteins that you get from these animals. Um, so what they've done, scientists tested in a sucrose solution, which uh-huh. was a proxy for the ice cream solution of sucrose, they're putting it in sub-zero conditions, so I guess it's got some sort of ice creamy tech, you know, ice creamy like situation, right? Um, and they found that after 24 hours, ice crystals stopped forming, stopped growing, right? And then after a week mm-hmm. of you know freezer conditions with this ice cream, the maximum size of ice crystal that was found was only 25 micrometers across, right? Okay, and that works right. well compared to current standards with the guar gum that I mentioned earlier current ice cream mm-hmm. that's commercially used they use the same conditions and only after three days they had already formed crystals that are 50 micrometers across in less than oh. half the time right so double okay. the size less than half the time of the crystal right um which means that there's clearly evidence for the cellulose nanocrystals being supremely good at slowing down ice crystal growth in ice creams uh compared to guar gum which increases the longevity of ice cream However, mm-hmm. uh, current scientists who are working on this uh, say that 
they need to do more research and before they're allowed to commercially implicate it in, in, in commercial ice cream, but looks good so far. Uh, it's very impressive how much effort they go to to make ice cream slightly less. Well, I suppose it's with everything. Like if you're if you're if you're a huge company like Ben and Jerry's, this is important stuff, no? Yeah, I guess. But I mean, how do you even market ice cream as will form less large ice crystals? Uh, like you know, it's it's not it's, it's not like you it's not like a factor when it comes to buying. No, but ice I feel cream. like if you bought Ben and Jerry's, let's say. And it's the first time mm-hmm. you've ever bought Ben Jerry's. You put it in the freezer, you take it out, you have a couple scoops, you put it back in the freezer, you take it out again the next time, and it's just not great. Like, it's crunchy and grainy and just, like, not great ice cream. It's going to change your perception mm-hmm. of Ben and Jerry's as a brand. <laughs> so it's an I important see. factor for them to consider when they're making ice cream. I have a bonus fact, as Fair I enough. usually do, because I it. have this extra one. This one I found really interesting. I was just perusing, right? It's a classic water does weird things and like there's no implication of this. It's just a thing we've observed, right? They've taken mm-hmm. ultra pure ice cylinders, right? Perfectly clear mm-hmm. ice cylinders. They put them in water varying from two degrees centigrade to 10 degrees centigrade, right? Uh-huh. Um, and they watched the formation or the shape of the thing process of the ice cylinder as it melts slowly into this water. Now, if the water's temperature okay. was less than five degrees, then the ice cylinder would form a pointy top, right? Uh huh. Like a st- uh, I can't remember where stalagmite or stalactite. I can't remember which one's on the ceiling or which one's on the floor. Stalagmite. Uh, stalagmite is on That's the floor. That's what I was thinking, but I couldn't call it. Stalagmite is on the floor. So essentially it looks like a stalagmite with the point facing upwards and the you know the wide bits at the bottom. This one's attached to the floor. Mm-hmm. The other one, if the temperature is above five degrees centigrade, then it forms a stalactite where it's really pointy at the bottom and wound at the top. And you're thinking, how does this happen? Well, it's to do with the density of the water and the density of ice. So below if the water surrounding the ice is below five degrees, um, then it's uh-huh. super dense, uh-huh. right? which actually means that the water that freshly melts off the ice, as the ice melts, right, mm-hmm. rises as buoyant compared to the water that is in, right? Which means the okay. warm water is pushed to the top of the ice cylinder, which means the top of the ice cylinder melts faster, faster, right? The opposite process Rise. is happening with, when the water is above five degrees because that means that the water that's melting off the ice cylinder is sinking. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I thought ice was at its densest at four degrees, roughly. So around four. Water's at its densest. Yeah, I thought that, that's that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, good. It, this is so just what they've seen around five, five degrees. Yeah, what yeah. happens at five degrees is this process called scalloping, and that's basically the water's rising and falling. Lots of complex fluid dynamics going in. Lots of vortices form, so you get these sort of spinning uh, convection cycles, I guess, of water coming off the ice stick the ultra pure ice uh, uh, cylinder and spinning around the side. And so what you get is this this sort of snowman bulbous, lots of balls on top of each other. And they call Mm -hmm. it scalloping because it's got a really uneven surface. Um, But it's like, you know how a snowman's got a ball and then it goes inwards a bit and then it's another ball and it goes inwards a bit and another ball, it goes inwards a bit. I don't want to say anal beads, but it looks like anal beads. (laughs) Anyway, that process is called scalloping. So, so I'm trying to convey that. it because it's a podcast, so I've got to. No, we got, everyone understood it before you said anal beads. 
Well, now everyone. Stand more. You know what snowmen look like? <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what anal bleeds look like, <laughs> it's a snowman. <laughs> it's a snowman for your bum. <laughs> all right, Sam, well, I'll finish it there. That's all I wanted to say. That was, that was I good. I was slightly worried. Of water in different ways. The interesting thought process I had behind that was like, if in a natural world you had ice in different situations, just like a block of ice fell into uh-huh. the river, then it would form different shapes depending on the temperature of the water, which I thought was quite interesting. And that's cool. I mean, it makes perfect sense as well. It's like a logical yeah, explanation that you could figure out. So, I mean, as a whole, that was pretty good. Yeah, like that, like that. The ice cream, the ice cream stuff was like. I guess it was interesting just as, to the effort to which people go to to prevent ice cream from... Like, I, honestly, I've never... I don't think once in my life thought about ice cream becoming grainy. But I guess that's you someone who someone got paid. So someone can now feed their children because they solved that problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of little problems like that all around the world, isn't there? I just thought that one was quite interesting. That they've got a new yeah. nanoparticle that comes from wood pulp. And it is a nanoparticle. Yeah, that's cool. like it is nanometers across. It's a, it's va- that a vaguely reminds me of number of atoms the... across these wood particles. Like they put cellulose in the concrete, didn't they? Cellulose fibers to strengthen oh, yeah. it. Um, I made a YouTube video about that now, so you can watch that. You did. Oh, you did. Lovely. Lovely stuff. Go. Right. Okay. Big topic coming, coming, Henry. Big topic coming. Right, give me, give me the knowledge. Knowledge coming. So, mites, mites, mites. They're like little, little tiny bugs. Little tiny bugs. They're actually arachnids. Weirdly, I, I, are they? I didn't know that. Yeah, some of them are, and some of them. So, some mites have ten legs, and they're like little crustaceany things. Well, not crustaceans, but they're they're not arachnids. And some mites are, in fact, arachnids. And these mites, and I'm about to be, about to be talking about mites. And the mites in particular, I'm going to be talking about are arachnids. Now, okay. the interesting part about these mites, they're called, well, they're called, I think they're called dermadocs, these mites. Dermadex. Sounds like skin related to the dermis. They, they sound a bit like treatment. Dermadex. Dermadex. They sound a bit like a brand of treatment for themselves. Basically, yeah. dermadex are a genus of mite or a group of mite that live on your face. Now, this might nice. not surprise you because we're kind of used to being told that we have small insects that we can't see living on our face. That's not all, that's not new, but they are there your entire life, and they're there on about mm, over definitely over half of people have them, and they have a, quite an odd existence, really. First, right. first of all, there's quite a lot of cool things you can do with these these mites. So these so these mites have actually been used to trace human evolution. Because you get different oh. species of mites on your face based on who you are, so they did these big studies. Which the first, the first thing they they, got, are they not contagious? Do they not go from face to face? No, in example, no, 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 no. no. The, you, you will probably never exchange mites with anyone at any point. The only time you get them is during breastfeeding, really, and then after that, they are mites. They they live on your face, wow. completely isolated. How long do they live? Uh, about two weeks, but their generations keep turning over. So this is quite. Like, right, cool. Guess how many generations of mites you go through before the end of your life? Do you think? Uh, ten million. Ten million? Are you kidding? 
Wait, no. generation. What? Generation. Sorry. Didn't... I thought I was thinking of individuals. No, no, no. How many generations of mice? <laughs> God, I got stressed there. How many generations? Ten. You said every two weeks. Well, I'm never making you guess again. So what, 80 years divided by two weeks, there's, it's eight times five times ten times ten. So it's 40,000. Wait. Oh my God, just stop. It's going to be more than the answer and it's going to be disappointing. It's 4,000 generations. About 1,200 generations of mites. I was in the right order of magnitude. Eventually, yeah. Okay, fair. I mean, you know, 1,200 generations of mites. So that's the equivalent of like when you die, the mites are us. And when you get your mites, they're like sort of upper Paleolithic mites. So, you know, they, okay. ha- they have a lot of time to advance the species between between right. the time that they, they enter your face and the time they leave their face. Leave your f- and what do they do with their days? What do they do with their days? Mostly just sort of hang out in your in your paws. They do like your paws. They're big fans of your paws. So what they'll do is they'll stay in your paws. They'll eat your sebum. They'll eat all your... Sebum, they, really? that's, that's That's what they eat. They eat loads of stuff. They eat sebum, which is like a sort of oil you secrete on your skin. So they clear blackheads? No. They're just sort of. Oh. I mean, I guess they. they, I mean, ha- they will to a degree. I guess they help a little. They? There's not. I haven't seen any research about people who have less face mites being less, more or less spotty or whatever. But maybe there's something in that. Well, I mean, blackheads are sebum and they eat sebum. They, so, they, yeah, they also have sex. I mean, I think you just produce more sebum to be honest. But they they also have sex on your face as well. I mean, obviously they do. Well, of course they do. They've got I know, 1,200 right? generations I'm, throughout your whole I don't life. see why it's surprising, but everybody... Let's do the math. How much sex is that? <laughs> How much... A lot of sex. That's, it's more sex than you'll ever have. It's being... It's being <laughs> They're laughing it's at being you. It's being had on your face. Yeah. So I, I, I guess, like... I mean, I don't know why people focus on that so much, but you will see people getting very upset that these mice are having sex on their face. But of course they are. Cause they, it's probably because they're not getting married. Because they live and die on your face. And you know what? They don't... You know one thing they don't do on your face? Well... Poo. You know why? Okay. You know what? Why don't they Do they poo? eat their own poo? That means they would still have to poo, wouldn't they? Well, how, how do they not poo on, the, on your face? They just store it. Yeah, they just they just store the poo, and at the end of their life, they just sort of explode in a sort of explosion of poo on your face. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's the fun fact. No, no, the whole fun fact is just face mites are cool, and then these are just a bunch oh, of facts. dude, that's the be- that that for me is if there's not a peak later on, that's the peak so far. That's the peak then. So they're like those exploding bugs in video games. They don't like explode, explode. They just burst, I guess. <laughs> they just sort of leak. Nah, come on. You said, do they leak? Are they leak their poo? Well, they just. But why have they not evolved? To, like, do you think they would live longer <laughs> if, they, if they evolved a way of removing their poo? I doubt it. I mean, the thing is, these mites are bad. They've undergone a huge amount of genetic drift over the years, just because how dramatically their population can get isolated and change while living on your face. So it's like, it does, there's good evidence to suggest that these mites are on their way to becoming human symbionts. Sick. So right now, they can just about live not on people, but they're almost entirely specialized and they're losing so much genetic material each generation, which is a hallmark of becoming a symbiont. And there's a decent, and there's evidence to suggest they lost their anus through what is essentially genetic drift 
and it's, it's wait. So not, one of them was just born without an anus, and then he kept yeah, it. Yeah, just to not, and it, because their face might there's not much evolution going on anyway, so they just survived. Wow. And like I saw another like thing. I, I don't know if these are mites. It's some tiny bug thing, right? And the way it, the males inseminate the females is by stabbing them and then just excreting the sper- the sperm that way. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, and then the sperm goes around the body and finds the reproductive organ. That's like that's like one step above what we do. I can't remember. It it, it stabs them somewhere on the abdomen, right, mm-hmm. with its penis. I see, yeah. right. It's micro penis. Um, right. <laughs> and then it stabs the female. Female's like, oh, all right, all right. Uh, I think sure. it might be a mite. It, it might be a mite. The funny bit is, is that females of this species can't remember the name of the species. They have a reproductive tract. <laughs> they have a place for the, the male's penis to go, but the male just doesn't use it. He just stabs the female with his it's penis. It's just not too good at aim. <laughs> he just misses. Just, just completely stabs. That's, wow. That's just, yeah, go nature. Go nature. I mean, I, I don't, I'm impressed that the females managed to still get pregnant from that. Like, how do they... How does the sperm find its way? I imagine it's one of those things where they all use the reproductive tract, and then one day one of them misses, stabs. And it's way better. And then they're like, wait, are you okay? And the female's like, yeah, I feel fine. And then she gets pregnant. Yeah, and he's like, like still I gonna, guess that works. still going to have babies? She's like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Maybe it's just like a kink. Yeah. All right, you were saying with face mites. You <laughs> saying face mites. Um... I mean, yeah, they release a small burst of feces when they die. And they all crawl back into your pores as well when they die there. And, um. You... So they explode in your pores. Yeah. And if you, and, um, so if you look at different compositions of face mites, you can tell where, where people live and what kind of diversity there is and what historical migration looks like. So, for example, in Africa, you have essentially all the different species of face mites live there. Huge diversity in face mites. But then usually you'll have a very specific conf- sort of, a specific like proportion of face mites that you get in Asia and then one in America from the Americans that went over there. And then in Europe, there's just like one face mite that everyone has. Why can't more species be like face mites? Just like, just living out their days, doing their business. No one knows. Well, not doing their business. Well, they, (laughs) especially not doing their business. It's a (laughs) deliberate thing. Exactly. Um, They eat sebum, which we don't care about. And then they die, and they've got twelve hundred generations per one of our lifespans. I don't know. You, you wish like everyone a, was like that. Mites are just feel-good animals, you know. Are they? Does this make you feel good? <laughs> it makes me feel good. It, does, it makes me feel good. Most people hate. You're never mites. alone. Like, you oh. are always a third wheel to some mites somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> to very many mites somewhere, all over you. Not just somewhere on your face. <laughs> you are always third wheel to many. And discovered by a guy called William Nutting. Sorry, no, not discovered by the. They're just he's just a specialist in them. They were discovered by a guy called Owen. That's it. Owen, just Owen. Just Owen. Well, yeah, probably probably a second or first name, but you know, <laughs> second or first. <laughs> Owen somewhere. Owen's either one of his names. If you meet an Owen, it could be him. And there's a so there's a lot of papers about them, and a lot of people have been controversial about whether they actually cause diseases or uncaused diseases or are diseases or whatever there's some there's, there's, just let be man they're not doing anything there's not they're much eating semen sebum <laughs> and maybe a little bit of semen if that gets That's on a that. critical error 
<laughs> we're not going. They're there. not going to say no to the We're, not, we're not, <laughs> not going there. <laughs> Sorry, they just chill. They don't. They don't. What disease are they going like, to give you? Like they're on your face your entire life. They don't go anywhere else. And not all like, people have. If it. they catch a disease, some it people, came from your face. A lot of people, so for example, people who are never breastfed, often just don't get them. Like it usually comes at a, some comes at some point, but sometimes they just don't get them. Does that mean it's like all over women's nipples? I mean, the implication is, yeah. But uh, I mean, I'm honestly, I'm quite confused. I'm quite confused as to how they spread because. It does def- it does say that they spread through breastfeeding, but it also says that like seventy percent of people have them, and it's like they can't. They just are they, is Why it is it just there? a face and breast thing, or is there like in between? Like is those two? Are they in your whole body? body? Are they special breast mites, or are they also the same mites? Like the breast mites, the OGs. Maybe it's if multiple people do breastfeeding on the same breast, they spread between them. But that requires yeah. and who was the first guy to just. There are so many questions. That's why you don't drink someone else's breast milk. I, don't, I mean, you can. I, I don't think you it... could have a face mite war on your face <laughs> mite war. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Oh, that'd be so cool. They're just sort of yeah, coming out of your pores in like little trenches. <laughs> that's how and you, then exploding. That's how you, I mean, pe- the people have multiple species of face mite on their face. Do they? For sure. For sure. Yeah. I want to make a TV show about this. Like a sitcom. A sitcom. <laughs> Where's Larry? About your face oh, it's mites. two weeks right? But up. you don't even find out their face mites until like the last episode and you just zoom out and it's just there's on the face mite of a character. That's just like another it was all a dream cliche. <laughs> yeah, it's so like cliche. I hate it when that happens. All of the characters when, when at the end, out when, to be face mites. Don't you hate it when the end of your favourite show they zoom out it's just face mites again. <laughs> yeah. Is that everything face mite wise? Um, thing is, I'm trying to find more. There's so much about them. I remember they met. There was they were mentioned in a podcast, and they had their tons of facts on them. But they're quite. We should look up. We should look up some pictures of them. They're quite. They're quite odd. Most of the interesting stuff about them was was genetics. Was about how essentially genetically starved they are, and they only have they only have three muscle cells with one nucleus in them, and that's enough to just deal with all their eight legs movement. Apparently. It's like what? It's very cool. Dude, they've nailed life. They've nailed it. They eat three, like they are, there's three no cells. fat on these guys. There's no fat. They just know. like I eat the sebum. I don't poop. Don't, Not required. Don't need to poop. Keep it. All I live there. my life. I do the reproducing. I only need three muscles. So why would I have any more? It's the ultimate minimalist. Yeah, they're, they're I eat the same perfection. Semi-solid grey matter my entire life, but also they they are undergoing a lot of genetic drift. The thing is, it's hard to tell genetic drift is a good thing or a bad thing, but it definitely results in in a bad time. They're face mites. Who cares? Like pretty soon, they're just gonna drift themselves into. I mean, they've already drifted themselves into not having a bum. Where's what's next? You what if they just drift themselves into like being in constant pain or? Like, I don't, I don't know if that can happen, but... No, but, like, it's got to be survivable, you know? Like... Yeah, but genetic drift can definitely be for the worse. It just has to be... For sure, like, losing an anus. Yeah, by chance. As long as you can pass on your genes to your children yeah. before this problem affects you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and apparently they weren't bothered by the arseless mite. And now lots of them... He was actually... He was, he was like, extremely... High. He was very hygienic. He was actually quite sexy. 
relative to the other mic. Just clean no hole. It's certainly a conversation starter. It was an icebreaker. You know, I, I, you know, I, I don't have an anus. <laughs> and then and then they wouldn't believe him. So they, they have to just prove it. And then that the one thing leads to another. The ultimate macho man. So macho. It's so macho. He's just no Physically, anus. So macho just... and has no anus and can still only dicks. <laughs> no anus. Right. Still a successful organism. <laughs> By the next generation, no one has anuses just because of this guy. You guys should look at uh, mites on your face. I know you can't see them, but look at them online because that's where they're really hiding out. Um, I think sometimes you can see them. I don't know. I think. I mean, they're very small. I might actually, have... you just have to be extremely lonely. If you get enough and face mites, then they'll, they can spot yeah. write little messages for you. They can control your mind. They explode in your face. They, ex- yeah. They, you can, if you look really closely, you can. If you listen really carefully, you can hear them exploding into a pile of shit. <laughs> uh, thank you, guys. Sam, I got some more information for you. Oh, thank God! This is honestly, right. this isn't, this is so exciting. Boa constrictors or <gasps> anacondas, uh, as you saw, Afrothinians. Sam, Sam went to Guyana recently for two weeks, which I think we've already mentioned this episode. But if we haven't, then there's a thing. Mm-hmm. Sam went to Guyana, went to the middle of the Amazon, slept in a hammock, had a fun experience apparently. But I, I, I sort of cringe a bit when I hear it. Best town my life would do again. Okay, wow. Um, anyway, he saw some anacondas, and anacondas kill their prey house. Um, Constriction, which means which means they essentially wait, and then they grab their prey by the face or neck, and then they quickly coil themselves around the body of the prey, and they slowly increase the pressure. And every time the prey breathes out, they sort of suck in a little, and they don't let it expand the volume of its lungs again, so it eventually just can't take in more air. Boa constrictor, it's like a giant tongue, right? It's just a big muscle, right? It's in a line. Oh, I've right? never heard it described as a giant tongue before. Squeezes real hard, right? Mm-hmm. Why does it not suffocate itself? Why does it not suffocate itself? It's not like it's got super strong ribs. I mean, the the lungs are dealing with pressure from multiple coils of the snake, whereas this individual snake is... No, but that should exert... I'm going to tell you. Oh, that's quite <laughs> cool. Facts, um, that's quite cool. Quite, fact, quite fun. All right, so I think you already know this. Snakes have a very long... They have long lungs, right? Their lungs span a really large portion of their body. It's kind of balloon-like, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have a diaphragm. Uh-huh. So they don't have a muscle like we do, which uh, decreases and increases the pressure in our rib cage, right? Yep, yep. How they do it is because they, is, they move... I don't know if it's called intercostal muscles in the in the snake, but they've got muscles attached to their ribs, like intercostal muscles in humans, um, that are able to rotate their ribs. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they move their ribs to increase their uh, rib cage cavity, which decreases the pressure and causes the lung to inhale. Right. The cool part is is that whilst constricting, they are able to move different ribs at different parts along the snake right? Mm-hmm. Depending on what part of the snake is being compressed and what part of the snake is not under tension. So if they're constricting the animal, their prey, yeah, yeah. using their upper portion of their body, right? That's being squashed. They're unable to move those ribs because it's under really high pressure as they're squeezing their prey, right? Mm-hmm. So what they do is they move the, the rib cage lower down in the snake, right? Towards its tail, right? 
and they expand that bit, right? And they breathe through the bottom of their body, right? Cons, you know, on the the other way around, uh, if they were constricting using their rear end, using their tail, right, and their head was quite free, then they would be able to move their muscle, their rib cage around their head in order to breathe through that part of the lung, right? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is using. I think they use all sorts of x-rays to monitor the motion of the muscles around the snake's rib cage whilst it did this sort of choking process. And they also squeeze the snake at different points along its body to see how it breathes, like as if it's constricting something, but they're not constricting something. They're just squeezing it with a pressure of tongs or something in a scientific conditions, right? Yeah. They saw that when the snake couldn't breathe at different parts of its body, it can activate muscles in other parts of its body to expand the cavity at other parts of its body in order to breathe through other parts of the body. Um, and it's got a almost conscious control of what part of its body and what specific ribs to rotate and move in order to increase the pressure at different points along its body. <laughs> so they can preferentially choose what rib cages, what rib ribs to move in order to breathe. Shit. That's very cool. I thought so. Oh, brilliant. That is right up my street. And is that just constrictors? I think it would just be from constrictors. It sounds like an adaptation for constrictors. Uh, yeah. X-ray videos revealed that when any one section of the ribs was constricted by the cuff, the snakes moved other ribs elsewhere in the body to compensate. Mm-hmm. In particular, when the cuff covered the region over the upper lungs, the snake would start moving ribs around the saccular lung region, which are the lower lungs. So, I mean, I'm, I guess what I'm going to ask is like, it's not just like like a huge number of snakes technically kill their prey through constriction, and they're, really? and they're not yeah they're they're not all like boas. So snakes are divided into well Afrophinia and then Canophidia, which is like one of them is like pythons and boas and stuff, and the rest are like colubrids and stuff. But loads of normal snakes that any snake that isn't venomous really technically kills its prey by constriction. So mm-hmm. it's like where did this sort of individual ribcage? Well, I suppose that, well, they've all got long lungs. They all don't have diaphragms. They all must be using their ribs to move, right? I guess. Um, But also, I I thought constriction was mostly cutting off blood to the head as well. Or is that just just around your neck? Well, I I, I thought, I know that's how strangling works. I guess constriction is more, is, is... is kind of is kind of just properly ribcage crushing. Are you asking why other do other snakes have this adaptation? Well, I'm asking which snakes have this adaptation, and I'm saying why they why, why uh, they don't just they've got a similar structure. So I suppose if they could move their ribs and they do constrict to a high enough level of pressure, then it would be a required adaptation to have to survive. Mm-hmm. Like if you're constricting something really hard mm-hmm. and you don't have this adaptation, you oh suffocate slowly as a snake. Yeah. Because your own muscles, are, it's like I don't know, strangling yourself. Or I don't know, somehow like that. Shit. Anyway, I don't. I couldn't find the stuff about the adaptations, so I'll just leave that out. I'm gonna. Have to, I'm gonna do some research on that. Snakes. That I. I did not know that snake fact. All right. Cool. It's very right. cool. Bye bye. Oh yeah. Bye. <laughs> Each individual ant is kind of very stupid. No, actually, Sam, I, I just need the toilet. Oh. Pineapple eats you. The physics question is, is everything just balls? Or is there more to it? Why is he there? Why is he there?
oh, I'm getting a bit warmer these days. Maybe I should, you know, disperse my ovaries into the world. Mm-hmm. I, I do that, yeah. This is non-falsifiable. This is not science. I'm not a fan of that, I'm going to be honest. Guess I'll wait for the sun to blow up. Why are you still giggling fast and furious, honey? This John Malkovich as Snail. And then this presenter was like, can you maybe like elaborate on that? Like maybe just, just for the viewers at home, give like a yeah. lady explanation. And I was like, I can't, no, no I can't. And then it goes, down, brown out, that's, uh, ugh. You're listening to The Substandard Model.